pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your goodness, grace, and mercy. And even in these moments ahead as we look to your word, I pray that it would encourage our souls, that we would uh, be edified. If there is anyone here today and they don't really know Christ, that you would open their eyes for every believer here, that they would be encouraged and continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. And what I'd like to do just right away, let's look to the passage, and I'm going to read it for you. And notice what Paul has communicated. Not that I've already attained it or have already become perfect. Verse 12, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many are perfect, think this way, and if in anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. Attained. So the message is entitled, A Passionate Pursuit. A Passionate Pursuit. Philippians three, twelve to 16, and most of the focus will actually be on 13 to 16. Uh, I think everyone would agree that we live in a world that is clearly intentional in pursuing unrighteousness. And they pursue it in increasing number of forms. I think that we are all in one sense waiting for, to get that wake-up call from this nightmare. And it's a nightmare that has a theme. And what's the theme of this nightmare? Moral foolishness. What's the theme of this nightmare? Confusion on gender and marriage. What is the theme of this nightmare? A denial of a biblical God, dishonesty as the norm, and at times even a comfort of one's own life to the denial of the life of the unborn. And there's also just a a visceral hatred for others, so much so that although they know it would be better to support someone else, they hate them so much they oppose it. This is the world in which we live. Uh, It We have said this before, and I'm sure it'll be said again. It seems like the world is at a place that it's never been before. Uh, We said that in 2008. We said it uh, maybe in 16. Uh, We'll probably say it again in 2024, uh, whatever happens then. Uh, But we can all agree that the world is morally corrupt. Can we all agree with that? And do we all see a moral decline in our society every day? It is pursuing all of these means to satisfy unrighteousness. And we stand out. We are different people. Um, The answer to this world is the gospel. We all agree with that. And if that is the answer, then we must all be a people who are serious about the gospel, pursuing the gospel, and pursuing the God of the gospel. So the answer is clear in my mind, and I believe it is in yours as well. You must pursue. And you have to pursue with passion 
a goal that is set before you, and that goal is to be more like Christ, this upward call of God. And when we pursue that goal, it will affect change. It, it will affect change in your life and then in the lives of those around you. That is, those that you influence, those that you will be a, a witness to, a light to, a beacon of hope to. Those people we pray will be affected by you, but they cannot be if you're indifferent. If Christianity isn't really your heartbeat, if you're not passionate about it. You know, I decided that I would break from my study. You know, we've been in Isaiah 40 to 48 and some very lofty thoughts in Isaiah, which are wonderful, and I pray that they've encouraged you. Often those thoughts are challenges for us to live in light of a God who is a faithful God, to be unlike Judah who committed covenant treachery, um, and we want to live differently. So I thought to myself, well... Um, I shared some of these thoughts in our Tuesday prayer time just as a devotional with them. And I thought, well, Sunday is coming. Do I go back to Isaiah 43, which is wonderful text waiting on us? But I thought, no, let's in one sense bring us down to earth a little bit and say, now, what are you going to do? How will you live? So all that we've heard about Judah and committing covenant treachery and God is a faithful God and he is unlike the gods of the nations. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who is going to be faithful despite your unfaithfulness. And even as we considered two weeks ago and, and then several weeks before that, that's grand statement in Isaiah 43, 4, he says, you're precious in my sight. You're honored. And I, what, what did he say? I love you. So what do we do? How do we respond to these great thoughts? How do we respond to the words written nearly 3,000 years ago? And I would say that we should be inspired and motivated to run with diligence all the more. We have to make sure that if we have these great thoughts of God, that great thoughts of God inspire us to live accordingly. And will we... Uh, get rid of sometimes our fascination with the world and all of its offerings. And we have to fight that off, do we not? And there are certain offerings that the world has, and we can be fascinated with them, and then we're tempted by them. But if we're pursuing, and if we're focused, then those things won't matter, because we're all in a spiritual race, are we not? And we're running for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of us, um, in some measure, uh, lived our former lives with a passion for the world. Not everything in the world, but all of us lived either on one continent or sin of another for at least a period of time. We lived for ourselves. We lived for the glory of self. We lived for our own satisfaction. And at times, some of you, and particularly those that may have come to the Lord later in life, You live with a certain degree of passion towards those things in the world. This is what I want, and this is what I desire, and you pursued it. So the question for us is that now that we're on the other side of our faith, if you will, will we and should we, I'll say it this way, should we be troubled that we don't pursue the things of the Lord with equal and even surpassing passion? You could say, boy, I was really focused on these things that I wanted in life. But now we come to faith and all we ask focus 
And we, we tend to sometimes we can lose focus because we know by the grace of God, there is God's grace and God's grace will carry us through, will it not? And nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. What a wonderful thought. We are secure in him, but security should not be something that takes away passion. We must be passionate in running this race. Now, I've mentioned this word passion a number of times. You see it in the title of the message itself. Let's try to think about a definition of passion itself. And there's some words that might help us um, define it. And if you were to simply go through a thesaurus and you would look up the word passion itself, which I've done, and I want to give you some key words. So if we think about passion, um, strong definition or strong emotion is passion. But here's some synonyms. And notice this, affection, agony, even ardor, dedication, devotion, eagerness, excitement, fervor, frenzy, fury, outburst, intensity, rage, resentment, sentiment, zeal, and zest. And even I love this vehemence. That if you're passionate about something, you're vehement about it. Now the antonym for it is simply this, calm and calmness. Who wants to live a calm Christian life? Any takers on that in the room today? I just want to be a calm Christian. No, (laughs) he would be that one, right? We'll talk after class. But all of us want to be what? I want to be vehement about this. I want to have zeal. I want to have zest. I want to have fervor. I want to be serious. I want to be dedicated. I want to be devoted. And why should we not be devoted? Because Jesus Christ was devoted to us, was he not? Did he not, when he came to this point where he would give his life for us, and he says he has set his heart, his heart, his mind is like flint towards Jerusalem. He did not turn back. He was resolved. How about this for passion? Also, um, it can mean adoration or love. And some uh, synonyms for that, appetite, attachment, um, desire, fondness, even lust, urge. Uh, the antonyms for it, dislike, hate, hatred. As well, passion can mean simply a strong interest. Synonyms for it, crave, drive, enthusiasm, fascination, idol, um, mania, obsession. And then the antonym for it is indifference. None of us would want to be indifferent to the Christian life. As a matter of fact, I would propose to you that a genuine believer cannot be indifferent to the Christian life. And if you can live a period of time in which you have an indifference to striving for the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is questionable whether or not you've entered the race at all. No, you cannot be indifferent to this. So in Philippians 3, 12 to 16, Paul is reminding the church that they have not arrived. And it is impossible for them, as some were teaching, that it is possible for us to gain a sense of perfection here. That we can, in one sense, if you will, put the Christian life on autopilot. That is not true. Some of when they've investigated Philippians thought, well, perhaps there are three groups of people here that are proposing these deviant views about the Christian life and how we respond to the security that we have and the hope that we have. And in verses 1 to 6, um, some would say, well, these are the Jewish legalists. 
and they are uh, adhering to strict adherence to the law, and you must abide by it. And this is why Paul breaks away and says, now as to the law, I was perfect. But that's something that I put behind me. And some would say, according to verses 17 to 21, well, you also had these libertines who opposed the law. It was just the opposite. Use your freedom. Um, There is no need to be bound by these moral requirements of the law. And some would say perhaps there's even a third group looking at verses 12 to 14. These were the perfectionists that would teach that they had already attained. Um, Some years ago, um, Wesley uh, of Charles Wesley taught in what has been called uh, Wesley perfectionism. And I've mentioned this to you before. And in Wesley perfectionism, Wesley believed that somehow, by any would say, by the grace of God and by discipline, I can reach a state in life where I become perfect. I will no longer sin. Um, but uh, Whitfield interacted with him on that quite a bit. And Wesley's position uh, obviously is debunked. And he himself came to grips with it later on in his Christian life. Now, uh, I think all of us in a very practical sense might say this, um, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. Would you mind being perfect right now? No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Would you mind that you can live this life and you never had an attitude again? Would anyone say, oh, no, I, I just want to keep struggling? Uh, any married folks here? Would you, would you say, boy, it would be wonderful if our marriage was absolutely, totally perfect for the rest of our lives. Now, I know you've attained to that already, but, you know, <laughs> you're, 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 you're about 95%. I understand it. I see it. You're in that 98 percentile. I understand it. I understand that some people just have what it takes, right? But in reality, what? No, we're not there yet, are we? And what is interesting sometimes about some of these deviant positions, whether they be ancient ones or even modern ones, and, and when it comes to this area, all you need to do is look in the mirror. And you say to yourself, well, that possibly, absolutely cannot be true, because guess what? I am who I am. And being who I am, I fail. So... And it is possible that maybe there's really not three groups. Uh, there's just two that are kind of merging these thoughts together, which is a, a strict legalism and this perfectionism. And Paul is addressing them and say, for those of you that think that somehow you have attained it yet and you can, it is not correct. And for those of you that are believing that the law is so important, absolutely it is not. I have put that behind me. And this is what he's communicating. And so... I want to give you, or at least the passage gives you, really four principles. Four principles uh, that will help you passionately strive in your journey to grow in the faith and anticipate your full reward. It is not here yet. Your full reward is not here yet. So there are four that we're going to look at. And the outline is this way. And let me give you the outline that we'll begin to work through it. Number one, passionately strive by knowing you have not reached the goal. Then passionately strive, recognizing your different goal. I have a different goal in life now. Paul saw that. And then I would say number three, passionately strive by focusing on the present goal. 
don't look into the past, and this is why Paul says, forgetting what's behind, and I reach forward. I need to focus on what is in front of me, and then forth, passionately strive by submitting to the standards of God, or the standards of the goal itself. There are standards. There are markers. There are principles. There are guidelines. There are commands that you must adhere to. So he says here, uh, no, you haven't arrived yet. Recognize you have a different goal. Focus on what's in front of you and submit to the standards if you're going to run this race. Now, in the immediate context, if we go back to verse 8, Paul wants them to understand in verse 8 of chapter 3 that they are people who must realize the costs. What do we mean by that? More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. I want Christ. So what is this cost? What cost is there that we must realize? Anything that interfere with my relationship with the Lord in the past and will interfere in the future, I consider it rubbish. And you've heard perhaps this word before. Rubbish is a word that communicates what? What does it mean? It's a very vivid word, is it not? Uh, It means refuse. It's dung. It's garbage. Anything in comparison to what is in front of me is considered refuge. But that cost is really nothing because why does one look back and say, oh, I wish that I had the refuge again. I wish that I had the garbage again. No one does that because now their life is different and they have before them nothing but glory and sanctification and Christ-likeness in front of them. And then in verse 9, they are people who have a stable standing. What's the basis of their stability? Well, it may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, and he says, upon faith. So that's the basis of my stability in the Christian life. It is infused righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that is in my account So therefore, I have stability. Stability is not based in our everyday actions. Now, having made that statement, let's make sure that we're clear. Um, Your righteousness is not based in your everyday actions. However, your everyday actions may be an indication of whether or not you have the righteousness of Christ. Do you understand? Because one cannot continue to live the way that they did before and then also claim that now I have a dynamic and changed relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our standing is in Christ, and because we're in Christ, something has happened internally, and now it will manifest itself in everyday life. It is, in one sense, simply the thought of James' argument. Um, your Faith without what? Works is what? It's dead. Live out your Christian life. And it's what we see throughout the New Testament so often. It is this call that we will walk worthy of what we have been called. A worthy walk. Then in um, verse 10, a bit more of the context, there are people who have resurrection power. And Paul says here that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So, wonderful. Why is it important that we have resurrection power? Because now we can actually live the Christian life. Uh, There are people, and some of you, and I've uh, 
you know, whether it be for membership, talk to you. I've heard your testimony before. Some of you attempted for a period of time to do what? You attempted to live the Christian life without resurrection power. That is anyone who was around church and had professed Christ and was attempting to live the Christian life before they were actually saved, you were attempting to do it without resurrection power. And I'm believing that there's some people here today that can identify with that. Why was this such a struggle? Why did I find myself constantly failing and constantly feeling guilt when I thought that I knew the Lord? Well, it was because you had no resurrection power. But now that I have resurrection power, I can now live the Christian life. And so Paul is saying to anyone that is a strict legalist at Philippi, no, you cannot attain to God's favor by your own works. No, there is effort because Paul also tells us what? In chapter 2, that we have to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. But he also says what? For it is God who is at work in you. So this this sort of beautiful spiritual synergy takes place. I I am working, but it is by the grace of God that I can work. So then he says, now, make sure that you are striving continually. Now, we're going to walk through this text now. And just to let you know, uh, once I have walked through it, then I'm going to give you some coaching tips at the end. Uh, Coaching tips are necessary, especially when we're in a race. Do you agree? So number one is this. Passionately strive by knowing you have not reached the goal. Notice verse 13. Not that I have already attained it. Verse 12 says this. I become perfect, but I press on to lay hold of that for which I've laid hold of. And then in verse 13, he says, what, brothers, I do not consider myself of having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. I am not there. Now, notice first Paul's tone. Paul's tone, he opens by saying, "Uh, brethren, brothers. It's an affectionate tone. His instructions come from the heart of a spiritual coach. They're saying, I want you to do better. You can do better. And by the grace of God, let me let you know that there's much life in front of you to live for the glory of God and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So it comes with genuine concern. And then his concern is evident because what he's doing here is just restating what he said in verse 12 that he hasn't obtained it, he hasn't become perfect, he's pressing hold of this mark, and he wants to lay hold of that for which he was also laid hold of by Christ. And the language is clear. So he says, "What? okay, laying hold, pressing, laid hold, uh, let's make sense of it for a moment. So Jesus Christ, um, I believe now, if I remember the date correctly, it was, I know it was April Uh, And it was 1983, something happened in my dorm room at the University of Cincinnati. Jesus Christ laid hold of me. And he says, now I have marked you off. You are now my child. Strive for me and be like me. So that's been some years ago that that happened. Nearly, well, next year, I mean, 40 years. Think about that. Wow. Well, more than that. Wow. I'm getting older, huh? No, not. No, it's not. Mature. Yeah, mature. <laughs> Think about that. He says, I laid hold of you. Now, when I, my eyes were open there in the dorm room, I realized, oh my, I must live for Christ. Whereas before, I mentioned that some of us lived in the world. I was on a continent of sin. 
and that traveled around that continent. And the Lord says, no, it's, it's now time to come home to be with me. And not in the absolute sense, obviously, but in the sense that now walk with me. And so Paul says, now I was laid hold of, if you will. Now I'm going to lay hold of that. I'm going to be vehement about it. I'm going to be passionate about it. I'm going to be devoted to it. I'm going to be committed to it, is what he's saying. So this is his concern. And why is Paul writing this? Because at the church of Philippi, there's some that may have misunderstood his teaching about security. We are secure in Christ. We are the righteousness of Christ. I stand in him and in his righteousness. And some may have thought, well, since I'm so secure, I don't have to strive as much. And Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. You must still strive. Yes, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he also is uh, correcting those that may have misunderstood this future hope that we have. It is absolutely guaranteed. Yes, that future hope is there, but our life is oriented by it. And this becomes a marker for us that motivates us to strive for Christ's likeness. This is what he's saying. And as I said before, there's really no need to try to unravel this false teaching too much because all we need to do is, as I said earlier, look at our own lives and we realize we're not there yet. We have not arrived. Number two is this. Passionately strive by recognizing your different goal. You have a different goal. There's a mindset that's required. And what is the mindset? Notice what he says. But one thing I do... It is forgetting. That's the first part of the mindset is forgetting. Um, Question for you. Um, How many of you forget things that you want to remember and remember things that you wish you could forget? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Uh, How many of you have gone up, if you have upstairs or to the kitchen, and you walk upstairs and you say, hmm. What? Now, some of the younger people are like, what are they talking about? Well, the day is coming, trust me. The day is coming. You go upstairs and you're like, why am I here? Then you walk back downstairs and guess what? Oh, yes, that's right. And then you're like, immediately let me go do it lest I forget again, right? That's what happens to us. But there are also things that we wish we could forget. At least with me, I wish I could forget. And this is why we have to be renewed in the spirit of the mind. So we can put things further and further back into our memory banks, if you will. That they are so not, not so readily available for us. So it uses a strong word, forgetting. And the word, it means uh, because of the preposition attached to the word itself, it's saying it's over and beyond. And being in the form that it is, it's a, it's a constant discarding. I'm always forgetting. Paul is not saying, I forgot and it's over with. I have to constantly discard things from my past and put them away. Um, James 1.24 uses this idea. He says, there is a man who forgets what sort of man he is. He's in the mirror and he goes away and he, he forgets it. Hebrews 13 and 16 there it talks about neglecting. Let's just look at it briefly. Hebrews 13, 16. Hebrews 13, 16. And it says here, um, verse 15, 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not neglect doing good in sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. It's a part of your Christian life. So he says, don't forget to do this. This manifests your true faith. So why does Paul talk about forgetting? And I believe it's several reasons he does this. Paul is not going to be hindered by anything from his past. His failures will not discourage him. His heritage will not give him any sense of false confidence. And this is why he said earlier in chapter 3, right? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Benjamite. And as to the law, perfect when it comes to the law, and particularly when he says that he's a Benjamite, and in part the reason he says he's a Benjamite, in part, not in whole, is because Benjamin remained faithful to Judah. We were not like those other tribes uh, that deserted the people of God, if you will. Benjamin stayed with Judah. And he would have loved to have said, perhaps I'm a Judite, but he, he can't. <laughs> so he says, my heritage, it means nothing. That gives me no confidence whatsoever. My confidence is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. But he also would say this, his success will not satisfy him. So it's not just a matter of forgetting the things that hindered us, but it's also forgetting the things where we were successful. Now, why is that important? Because sometimes what we can do, we can say, yes, I remember the success I had in a given area, and then we can become what? A complacent. This is no problem. I got this. No, you don't. That is always the downfall in a person's spiritual life. Do you agree with me? Because pride comes before the what? Fall. And if you're so prideful to think, look, I've had success in this area in the past. I will have success in the future. You will only have success as you rely on the grace of God in your present circumstance. So Paul says, no, failures won't discourage me. My heritage, not my confidence. Any success, Hebrew of Hebrews, law, perfect, Benjamite, none of that. It's all garbage. This is so critical. You know, time can go by and you don't realize what's happening, how your life has changed. Uh, my college days, the Lord, I'm so thankful that he saved me and put me on a different course. I have a, uh, we always, generally every family has someone that is the, the historian in the family and they keep the pictures and the little sentimental things. And, and I have someone in our family like that, my sister. And some years ago, um, she found some pictures of my college life. How did you find these things? And she sent them to me after I'd been now married for several years, and I got them, and I thought, oh, my. Yeah. And in all seriousness, some of them I threw away. And some of them I thought, I cropped it. I said, let me cut this out. But then even when I looked at it, I thought, let me throw it away because I know what used to be there. So even cropping it out wasn't satisfactory because I could conjure up, oh, that's okay. Get rid of it. So we need to forget. We have to forget. Um, You know, it's interesting, too. I'm going to give you several sports analogies because it fits with the language. Um, Who is familiar with the name Edwin Moses? Edwin Moses. Okay, great. 
considered um, the greatest 400-meter hurdler of all time. Although there's a young kid now who is best at some of his times, but not this record. Edwin Moses, greatest ever. Um, Over a period of, think about this, over a period of 10 years, Edwin Moses, from August 1977 to May 1987, he had 122 straight victories. 122 times. No one could beat Edwin Moses. Fascinating. And if you ever run, which I have, if you've ever run a 400 meter, it is, it is a bear. And as you would say, like in, when we run track, I ran some track too. When you come around that 300 mark, you would say, that's the monkeys on your back now. And what that means is that all of a sudden you feel extra weight that is upon you. And I still can't imagine someone doing a 400 meter while going over hurdles. To me, that's, that's utterly, if you will. I saw many of his races. And what I saw Edwin do, Edwin do is this. He was not perfect. There are times he hit hurdles. And there are times he would, they would fall over. But you know what he did? He made adjustments. He says, okay, I've hit it. And somehow he trained himself so much, which is what a hurdler will do. I've hit it. I'm throwing off just a little bit. Now I have to change my pace a bit. Now, what did you never see or you will never see? If they were to hit a hurdle, you'd never see them. Oh, my, what happened? You're never going to see that. Or someone's in a race. And they they feel that person coming behind me. They never look back and say, friend, why are you chasing me? (laughs) Loss. (laughs) You get the point, do you not? No, you strive continually for getting what's behind because there's something in front of you. So number three, passionately strive by focusing on the present goal. You focus on the present goal. Go back to Philippians 3. What does it say? So first he says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we remember We forget, and now we have to reach. Very strong word, this word reach. I love this word. This is a great word. And um, and the word means toward and out. Because what's interesting about it in the language, it has like two prepositions in front of it. And these two prepositions communicate a double effort, if you will. So you stretch forward, you strain, is what it's communicating here. And um, coaching is really important. Paul is a great spiritual coach. And, and coaches are those people that can take individuals who maybe aren't the best of athletes and they make them better. And coaches are also people who can take excellent athletes and have them do what? Strive even more. Remember what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, he saw that they were doing well, but Paul said what? Excel, what did he say? Still more. Excel still more. He commended them, but yet he said there's more. And here's a question. Why is there always more? There's always more because Christ is the object. Yeah. So we strive towards that. 
So reaching out towards is what the language communicates. So Paul says, I want you to keep striving, excel more. There are some words in the scripture that communicate this idea. We need to have passion as we live this Christian life. Words like run and words like box and words like fight and words like wrestle, words like course, words like strive, lay aside, captive warfare. This is serious. So run. First Corinthians 9.24, Paul there says run to win. In Hebrews 12 and 1, 1, he says, run with endurance. Box, 1 Corinthians 9, 26, Paul says, I'm not beating the air. I'm boxing with purpose. There's purpose behind me as I'm engaged in this Christian life. Fight, 1 Timothy 1, 18, um, 6, 12, um, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Paul says what? I'm going to fight. What sort of fight? The good fight. So the question for you is, are you engaged in a good fight Are you just in the fight? He says, wrestle. Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle or struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against power. We're in a wrestling match, if you will. But we can be victorious as we depend upon the grace of God. Course. 2 Timothy 4. Paul says, I have finished the course. He has fought the good fight. We're all on a course right now. And as you're on this course, you must pay attention to the lanes, if you will. Strive. Um, 2 Peter 3 and 14, it says we're to strive to be without blemish. We're striving towards it. It will be realized in heaven when all of us cross the Jordan. Then we will finally be without blemish. But now we're striving towards it. Lay aside. And going back to the thought from running, Uh, The writer of Hebrews said, what, Um, 12 and 1, lay aside, what, every encumbrance and the sin which so does, what, easily entangles us. Lay it aside, captive, 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, that we're destroying speculations and we're taking every thought captive. And that language, although it may be applied, but often people want to say, well, there's the proof verse I need to take all my thoughts captive and obedience to Christ. I shouldn't think those bad things. Now, it is true because that's the thought of being renewed in the spirit of your mind. But really, in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul's point is this. We're fighting against philosophy and ideology. We're taking those thoughts captive, and we're saying to those thoughts, obey and bow down to Jesus Christ. So we say to our society and its deviant ideology, bow down to Jesus Christ. Our society says um, gender is fluid. Bow down. Let's take that captive. Our society says, well, open marriage is something that um, is an option. Bow down to Jesus Christ. It is not. Our society says, here is our definition of justice. And we say that is a warped definition of justice. Bow down to Jesus Christ. We take that captive. And the list can go on and on and on. Of course, we would take this captive society, and you've seen it before. You've been on the road, and you look at someone's on the, their bumper there, and you see the sticker that says coexist. Have you seen that one before? And the symbols of all the major religions. We say to that, do we say take that captive? What do we say to that? Bow down to Jesus Christ, do we not? No. 
Because Jesus Christ said what's so plainly a child can understand it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Warfare. 2 Timothy 2.24. Paul says to Timothy, No soldier in active service entangles themselves in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. You're engaged in warfare. And in one sense, I don't need to tell you that because you feel it every day, do you not? Even if you were to take some extreme um, example of some monk that goes and lives in a, in a distant place, and you say, I'll be away from all of society. Guess what? You're going to feel something, what, internally, will you not? You're engaged in a warfare. So this image here reaching forward is that Olympic runner that is striving. Here's a question for you. If you were to measure the effort of your passion, what would your rating be? They said pictures like a thousand words. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. A thousand words. Picture 2004 Olympics, Athens, classic. Athens. Now, you do see all three of them are doing what? It's epictonomenos. That's the word. Ep, ep, that double preposition, this participle, they're striving, they're reaching out. All three of them are doing what? Do you see anyone looking behind them? Do you see anyone standing up straight? No, you don't. They're all striving, reaching. And what is interesting about that race, it was the closest in Olympic history. Why? Gold medal, silver, bronze. Listen to this. Gold medal, 9.85. Silver, 9.86. Bronze, 9.87. One hundredth of a second between each one of them. Had any of them decided, oh, I think I have this wrong? No, friend. Now, in lane three, um, Gatlin, he won. He won 9.85. Striving. How would you rate yourself? Are you striving and reaching towards Jesus Christ? There's a call to the focus as well. I give this to you briefly. The call to the focus, Proverbs 4, 23 to 27. Just note that. Proverbs 4, 23 to 27. And the message is essentially this, that we don't look to the left or to the right. It says we, we walk with our gaze fixed straight in front of us. And that's what we must do in our Christian life. We're not looking to the left or looking to the right. We're not looking behind. It's fixed straight in front of us. And if the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God is in front of us, isn't that a great motivation? What does the world have to offer us? What does the past have to offer us when Jesus Christ is in front of us? So there's a call to focus. Then considering the goal, if for a moment, think about it. He says the goal, or um, the word can mean the, literally in the, the Septuagint is an archer's target. We're specific. Uh, you, some of you know I like to go out hiking, and when I do my Sunday morning, uh, hello, this is what I'm preaching. Uh, I'm going on a little trail that's behind my house, and I, I love going to places like that and exploring, and parks, and whatever else. Um, But um, I've been to places where they'll say, stay on the trail. And there are markers for the trail. 
you're at mile five, you're at mile 10 point, this is this trail that's ahead. I tend to, what do you think I tend to do? Yeah, I go wandering. <laughs> I sometimes ignore the markers because <laughs> I look over there and say, man, that looks great over there. And I've done it. Jump down, my pack on, and go explore. And then I get to see things that sometimes few people have seen. Stay on the trail. <laughs> like rattlesnakes, he says. Yeah, black bear, that's why you need a 45. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. I tend to do that. But in the Christian life, unacceptable. They're markers. Here are the markers. Stay there and strive for God. So this goal, that's what we're striving for. We run because we want a prize. We, there's a crown that's laid up for us, 2 Timothy 4.8. Revelation 2 and 10, we will receive the crown of life. This upward call. The last thing is this. Number four, passionately strive by submitting to the standards of the goal. Go back to Philippians 3. Um, the standards of the goal. First, there's an attitude that's needed. And I just give it to you. What is the attitude? You'd have to go back to chapter 2, 5 and following. Let this attitude be in you. It's an attitude of deference and an attitude of preference. It's an attitude of humility. And if we have that humble spirit, we realize that we want God to be at work in us. But there's also a moral standard of the goal. Um, There's a standard for living the Christian life. There are some at Philippi, most likely the antinomians who are against the law, that they're trying to convince others that moral excellence and moral expectation isn't necessary. And Paul says, no, it is. Absolutely, it is. Sanctification is a part of the Christian life. And that is an indication that we've truly come to the Lord, that we're growing in his grace and knowledge. There must be a standard and you must follow it. And this is what he says. I just read it. Let us therefore, as many are perfect, and I think he's playing on the word perfect here, saying perfect, and he's using it in a proper sense. The mature um, understand this, think this way, and if anyone thinks differently, God will reveal that also. Some of you think you're perfect, and you really aren't. You're actually immature. But mature people realize that there is a standard. And then in verse 16, However, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. Now, you saw that picture earlier. Um, Justin Gatlin wins the Olympic medal, 2004, Olympic Games. However, Gatlin has always been a bit of a controversial trackster. Uh, Did you know that in 2006, he was banned from competition? Eight-year ban. He could not compete anymore. Now, he appealed it, and they made it four years. Why was he disqualified? I remember before I talked about being in the race, but you can be disqualified because you're really not in the race. He was disqualified because he used, as you might imagine, illegal enhancing drugs. And they found him in his system. And he says, no, you're a really good sprinter, and you run well, DQ'd. They're standards. And if you don't run by the standards, then it's evidence you're really not truly a runner for the Lord. It's plain. 
Matthew 7, and on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And what will he say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But I ran so much, and I, I did so much, and you weren't running by the standards. You're DQ'd. Yeah. So let me give you the coaching tips, okay? We'll close with this. Number one is this. Let's start where we must start. Are you in the race? Are you in the race? So if you come to the point in your life where you say, I know the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has transformed, and he is transforming my life, I have repented and believe in him. Number two, here's the question. Um, do you have a plan that will help you run consistently? Um, you saw these three, those tracksters, the 100-meter, 2004 Athens. None of them got there just by saying, boy, I'd love to be in the Olympics one day. There's a plan. There's sacrifice. There's commitment that's necessary to attain to that. And Paul is using the language, and even when he says upward call, is a language that is Olympic language to be on that platform. Number three, what are you holding? Uh, what are you holding that you promised you would give up? That is, there's something in your life, and we know we do this at times, do we not? We say, this is, I am going to give this up one day. I know that it's a distraction. I know that it's not the best thing. I could probably use my time better. I could probably be reading the word of God instead. I could probably be praying. I could probably be in fellowship if I didn't do it, but then you still hold on to it. That's a personal question. But a coach has the asset of his, of his mates. I was asked that, Hargrove, you, you really could be better. Why aren't you putting in the time? Well, Number four, to whom are you accountable for your goal? Do you have a training partner? I mean, someone that can get in the spiritual gym of life with you and push you a little bit? Is there someone who spurs you on? Is there someone that can say to you, you can do better? Or someone that can say, that is the wrong course of action. That is the wrong relationship. That is, the, that is not a wise decision. Do you have a training partner? Every Olympian will have training partners. Number five, and we're striving for something that's an imperishable reef, not a perishable reef, which was what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Number five, remember that laying hold involves everyday life decisions. So this isn't some super spiritual um, lesson here. It is everyday decisions that you must make. When you wake up in the morning, how will you live your life? I woke up in this morning and I had to make a decision. Am I going to concern myself with midterm elections or am I going to praise the living God and prepare to preach the word of God? I had to make a decision. So I went out on my walk and talked about what I'm going to be teaching, which helps me think it through a little bit more. That was a decision. I made a decision when I lay in bed that I was singing in my heart how great they are. That was a decision for life. I make a decision in coming and greet some of you. I'll make a decision later in fellowship with people. I'll make a decision late tonight. I've got to sit here and I've got to put in hopefully about 800 words tonight. I have to make a decision with life. And so must you. Everyday choices that you must make. Number six, coaching tip number six. Consistency is better than extreme commitment that fades. 
Because sometimes we, we hear a message or we go to retreat, right? And we say, oh, this is it. This is the moment. I'm going to be so serious about Christianity. And then we get excited about it. And then what happens? Mm, the temperature comes down a bit. So we're no longer vehement. And we're no longer devoted. And we no longer have a, have a sense of urge anymore. Just be consistent. Consistent. I've told students, even in prayer, and I've said it here in workshops that I've done, people that are struggling with prayer, I'll say, they'll hear a quote, you know, Martin Luther said, as he looked at his day, he says, oh, there is much that I must do. I must spend the first two hours in prayer. Because the tendency is I have much to do, then we have to what? Start doing it. So people hear that and they think, oh, I have to pray, pray for two hours or an hour or things like that. And I'll tell people, Seven minutes a day. I've said it to you before. Seven minutes. They say, oh, I'm, ah, give me more. <laughs> and I, I, the, the math has not changed. Watch this math. Watch this. And this is not colonialism either. Oh, that, anyway. <laughs> Seven is greater than zero. Do we all agree on that? Can we say amen? amen. That's... I went to school for that. (laughs) Seven is greater than zero. Consistency. And maybe seven becomes eight, becomes nine, becomes 10, becomes 11. And guess what? Maybe for your rest of your life, you're like 15 minutes a day for the rest of your life. But it's surely better than the next 20 years of nothing. And the next 20 years of hit and miss. In the next 20 years of sometimes I read the Bible and sometimes I don't. In the next 20 years of sometimes I serve, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I give praise to the living God from the bottom of my heart and sometimes I don't. Consistency. Because that's true in parenting, is it not? Consistency. Parenting is hard work, is it not, for those of you that have kids? And what do you have to be consistent? I meant what I said and I said what I meant. <laughs> Listen to me. No. We've already agreed. No. Number seven. Use your past mistakes to learn for the race ahead. I failed here. Let's not repeat that again. Boy, this looks like familiar territory. Let's not do that again. Let's not repeat that. And that was a thought from 1 Corinthians 10 when Paul is telling the church at Corinth, learn from the people of God, learn from their error. Don't repeat their error. Now, the word is, before I give you this eighth tip, if we go back to verse 12. Again, this idea of pressing and laying hold of, I didn't say it as much, but the word is incredibly strong. To pull down, to attack, is what it's saying. So, If you're going to do these things, it it, it requires intensity because guess what? The world and your flesh is surely fighting against you. Is there anyone anyone in this room today you say, you know what? I don't really feel uh, the pressures of the world. I don't feel any internal battle whatsoever. Of course not. That doesn't exist. It's intense. You must be intense. So we have to come to grips with that. Um, You know, we... My kids growing up, you tell them to handle something. Hey, can you go get this for me? And especially when they're younger, 
they'd have a toy or something in their hand and it asked them to take the plates over here and they're trying to do both at once. And what did I tell them to do? Put it down. Grab it with both hands. Do you not say that? Get it with both hands. In the Christian life, some of you are afraid is this, and this is between you and the living God. You have these toys of the world in your hand and you're trying to also run this race. Put them down and grab it with both hands. Paul says, I'm going to lay hold of it. Here's your eighth tip. It's straightforward. One word, it's this, decide. The coach can't play for you. The coach can't play for you. You have to decide. Lord, I am going to strive with passion for you. So, I have something in front of me. I'm going to forget what's behind me. I'm going to strive with all of my might to be like Christ. And I'm going to make a decision. Preaching always comes to that ultimately. Decide. No one can decide. I can't decide for you. I can't. I pray that you will. Amen. Father, we thank you for these words you've given us and pray that we can decide to strive for you. Thank you that you gave your only son that he went toward Jerusalem, never looking back, but to the cross. And let us take up our cross daily and follow you. Amen.